Good morning, Twin Cities Church. It's great to be with you here on this uh, beautiful winter morning. Yeah. <laughs> As Deirdre mentioned, we are working through the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel is the longest book of the Bible by word count. Um, and it's a difficult book to read because of the, the intensity and the weight of, of, what is, of what is written, its, its contents. It is, it is the words of God's judgment against Israel in its last days. And it's the, it's the combined, it, well, it's, it's, at this point, it's just, it's just Judah. Uh, they are in the midst of collapse. Ezekiel is actually prophesying uh, from, from exile. Uh, there are still people back in Jerusalem, but eventually throughout the course of, of the time and throughout Ezekiel's season of prophecy, uh, Jerusalem is completely captured. The temple uh, is destroyed. Really, the, the nation was taken over. And I think that we can have a little bit of sense of what that probably felt like for that nation, uh, given the events of this past week. You know, we can, we can, you know, historians and philosophers, and look, we can look back and see the, the material things that were going on that, that leads to the collapse of nations. This is a, a huge topic of study, especially right now. What goes into the collapse of complex societies and nations that have lasted, you know, hundreds of years? But we don't always know what's going on spiritually. But I think that the word of God through Ezekiel, through really through all the prophets in the history of Israel, uh, shows us what a nation looks like when it has rejected God as the source of well-being and prosperity. The things that happen are common. The things that we can look at and see that, that lead to the collapse of nations and societies are pretty consistent. We see in Ezekiel unchecked lies and conspiracies, economic disparities, which bring disconnect between the rich and the poor, which leads to oppression, at times intentional, uh, envy, all of these things essentially leading to violence eventually. There's the oppression of the poor and the immigrants uh, by merchants and rulers. There is the dishonoring of mothers and fathers and the institution of family. And here within Israel, we had the forsaking of the Sabbath, which was unique to the nation of Israel. And as we talked last week, the Sabbath was really the, the structure that God put into the constitution of the nation of Israel so that they would remember that their prosperity was from God. And in that prosperity, they could take a day off, they could rest and enjoy the fruit of their labor without fear of, of not having enough. So that was, a, that was a blessing that God gave them. They forsook it, which means that they really forgot God. They really pushed God out and no longer recognized that he was the source of their prosperity. Now, originally, I wanted to cap off this list of conditions that led to Israel's collapse with that message from last week uh, and do today's last week. Uh, but given the holiday season and that Sabbath was a holiday, I switched it up. But today's topic uh, is, is unchecked sexual immorality. Unchecked sexual immorality. Now again, the root issues to these things is idolatry, the, the worship of something else other than God, the recognition of something else as being 
critical to our ability to be happy and prosperous as, as people. If we believe that our prosperity and that our happiness is completely up to our own efforts and to our own wills, it, will event, it leads to what we see in our world. It leads to what scientists have observed in nature. It, it is natural selection. It is survival of the fittest. And that really is the story of human history. We destroy ourselves. We destroy ourselves. The philosopher Nietzsche argued that the, the values and, and morals and, and things that we as a modern secular society hold on to really come from Christianity. And he asked the question, what happens to our culture if we remove the source of the, the values that we hold up, like uh, the, the worth of individuals, the equality of individuals? That would be one ideal. Um, the, the, um, the, the scourge of, of slavery. If we throw out the sources of what our modern-day secular values are, human rights and all of these things, um, which historians and philosophers have recognized for a long time and are increasingly recognizing that really Christianity was the source of these things. If we throw out God, if we throw out Christianity, where is the culture going to be? Will it be able to hold on to its values? And even when Christianity has been used for oppression, when it has been used for power within it, is a corrective. And it is always correcting. That's the unique thing about Christianity. So even though, for example, uh, Christians have had a role in slavery throughout history, uh, and including here in North America, and many people that were Christians were using the Bible to argue for the validity of, of slavery. It was, it was Christians, both in, in Europe and America, that led the initiative, that spearheaded the effort to, to abolish slavery. So Christianity has within it the, the fear and service and love of biblical, the biblical God has within it correctives. And so God has been working to create a people who recognize him. It was the nation of Israel, and now it's the church. And within the nation of Israel, he put these structures in. He put the Sabbath in for it, his people to recognize that their happiness and material prosperity would come from, comes from him. And that was the fourth commandment. The fifth commandment is this command to honor your father and your mother. And this was, Lawrence spent some time on this a few weeks ago in, in regard to the breakdown of the family. This was the fifth commandment. So the first three commandments orient us to God properly. Uh, you shall worship your God alone. You'll not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You'll not make any idols to represent God. And then it's keep the Sabbath Remember, which forces us to remember that God is the source of our material prosperity. And then we have family, which I think um, is there for us to remember that God is the source of our, of our social prosperity, of our social well-being. It's mothers and fathers. It's not husbands and wives. Mothers and fathers have, have come together in reflection of what God created in marriage They've come together and they have produced offspring. They have produced offspring. 
And so from offspring comes families, comes communities, comes nations, as we see the, the biblical story unfold. And so in the command for us to honor our fathers and our mothers, it's really a call to hold into high regard and, that, and to remember that God is the source of beauty and strength in marriage, in sex, in family, in parenting, in generational ties, indeed in the, in the very fabric of our society is this command, honor your father and your mother. If we lose that, we lose the, the, the bedrock of what makes a healthy civilization. And again, all of this comes back to God as the father, the source of, the source of all life in heaven and on earth. So the judgments against Israel's culture of, of sexual immorality and all of these things were just reflections of where Israel was already at in terms of a culture of greed and corruption and self-centeredness. The list that Jose read is fairly significant and hits almost every area of sexual immorality, fornication which is sex outside of marriage, prostitution, sons sleeping with their father's wives, adultery, fathers sleeping with their daughters-in-law, rape. All of these things, God was bringing judgment against Israel for these things. The King Josiah, one of the later kings in Judah, Recognize that they, <clears throat> excuse me, Lawrence, would you give me my glass of water there? Thank you. Sorry for that. <laughs> King Josiah, one of the later kings of, of Judah, recognized that they as a nation had fallen from God. And he instituted a bunch of moral reforms. He restarted the Passover, which they hadn't celebrated in generations. But they had gone so far as a culture that these religious efforts were just a little too little and too late. Now, it doesn't take long for us, for anyone, to really observe the sewage pit of America's sexual health. And obviously we see statistics about this kind of stuff all the time. But I don't want to give statistics today. I want to tell a little story. And it's a story that was in the, the New York Times a couple of weeks ago by the uh, reporter uh, Nicholas Kristof. It was called, uh, the story is called The Children of Pornhub. And it featured a, a young girl named Serena Fleetis. At 14 years old, her older boyfriend encouraged her to make a naked video of herself and send it to her on her phone. Well, he shared it with his friends. Those friends of his uploaded the video to Pornhub. Now, Pornhub is like YouTube for pornography. There are 3.5 billion visits to Pornhub each month, which is more than Netflix or Amazon. It is the 10th most visited site in the world and upwards of 7 million videos a year 
are submitted to the website. And while people will say and, and do say, and it's probably true that a lot of the video is consensual adults, there are a lot of videos that show rape, child porn, child rape, etc. So Serena, after having her naked body distributed to Pornhub, eventually it spread throughout the school that she was in. She increasingly was, was uh, you know, breaking down, getting into fights with her mom. She switched schools, but the videos continued to spread. The rumors continued to spread. She ended up dropping out of school. She became addicted to opioids and meth, and before the age of 16, tried to kill herself twice. At 16, she started selling nude videos of herself on Craigslist. She's now 19 years old, and after the story, she has received a lot of offers to help her. She was homeless and living out of her car with three dogs. She's in a home now, and she's had offers to pay for her school. She would like to become a vet tech. Now, Christoph's article... Uh, was very critical, obviously, of the organization Pornhub um, and critical of, of banks and governments that have some responsibility in that. But he made a statement. He said, Shouldn't we be, can't we be uh, positive about sex and negative about Pornhub? And, and really the ideal that emerges in our culture in terms of a, of a principle or a value of sex or any moral ethic is, is as long as it's between consensual adults. That's really kind of the only guiding norm. Um, well, with that as our guiding norm, American culture in regard to sexuality is what we get. It's a good norm, but it is, it is vastly uh, unable to create a, a healthy social and sexual ethic for an entire culture. We are blind and rudderless. From a, scientific, from a scientific and biological standpoint, we know more about our bodies and sexuality than any other generation before us. But from the standpoint of wisdom and social health and happiness and sexual well-being, we are the least equipped generation. And I, I don't want to sound hopeless, but it seems like it is beyond hope that we as a culture are going to, are we, we're, that we're really going to have a change, that we're really going to shift. But what I want to look at today is, is just some of the, the ideas and teachings and images from a couple of passages in the Hebrew Bible that that paints an integrated vision of what, of what sexual happiness and health and wholesomeness in life is. And, and to see what, what Jesus Christ has done for us as his people to bring us out of the, out of the sewage pit of where we're at and into a place of, of life and prosperity from a, a social and familial and cultural and emotional perspective. So the first passage that I want to just briefly look at, and we're just going to kind of highlight a few big ideas as we go through these. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and, through 26 and 27. Now, in the story, humanity emerges as God's pinnacle of creation. It's, this, it's what he creates on, on the sixth day and concludes his work. 
And he says, let us make man in our image. And so humanity is, is created in the image of God. The animals weren't, the birds, the fish, none of those things, just human beings. Human beings created in the image of God. And he says, let us make man in our image, male and female, let's create them. And he does. So we see here one, of what it, one aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. God exists as one being made up of three beings. Humanity is is one, but yet made up of male and female. When they come together in marriage and are one flesh and also in, intended by God to be of one mind and spirit, there are, they are two making up one, like God is three making up one. And it's a mystery. It's one of those mysteries of the Christian faith. But that is one of the uh, aspects of what it means to be made in the image of God. And so first and foremost, sexuality, in terms of its one flesh experience, is to be mirroring and, mirroring and, and imaging God. Its, its ultimate purpose is not just for our own uh, sexual pleasure and self-fulfillment. It is to, to reflect something about the beauty and the glory and the companionship and the unity that God shares as, as Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit were not revealed in chapter 1 of Genesis. We see, we see God, we see His Word, and we see the Spirit. We later know from the New Testament that that's Father, Son, and Spirit. But they are, they are joined together uh, as one, expressing a, a, a shared love and union and commitment with each other. And that's really what men and women as husband and wife are supposed to be imaging. That's one. The second thing, it's coming, it comes from Genesis chapter 2. Now, Genesis chapter 2 drills down into the day that God created man and woman, and we get some more details and specifics out of that. God first created man alone in the garden and recognized that he was alone and that that was not a good thing. So then God has man, Adam, name all of these the animals that he has created, which is an identity thing. Uh, he's, he's identifying these animals, and at the end of his work, he, he doesn't identify any of them that is going to provide what he needs in terms of a helper. So God causes sleep to fall upon Adam and from Adam's flesh and bone, not, not the dust of the earth like he created Adam from, but woman comes directly from flesh and bone and then God wakes up Adam and Adam sees woman and he sings a song it's the first recorded speech in the scriptures of human beings and there are a few things that 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 this song really reveals about where where Adam was at and, and the realizations and place he came to be after he was introduced to woman prior to that portion of the text the man Adam is referred to as Adam. But he sings this song and he gives himself really a new, a new name. He calls himself man and then he calls himself woman. It's a different word than what the text had been using. And we see Adam coming to a place where he now does not, he no longer understands himself as just this isolated individual. 
he sees that his identity is connected to this new creation of woman. Woman comes from man. And so the, the, he sees himself now as a part of someone else. He sees himself as, as man to this woman and that they have this complementary nature to them that they no longer can exist really as independent individual beings. They have companionship and friendship. And you don't have to be married to have a friend and a companion, but marriage requires friendship and companionship. The one flesh relationship requires the friendship and companionship that marriage alone can bring. The first word he says is, at last, at last, after naming all of these animals and recognizing that cows and dogs and sheep are not going to cover what he's looking for, he says, at last, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There's an expression of emotional relief, of physical relief, of peace. That comes when we recognize that God is the source of well-being when it comes to human sexuality. The third thing, also in Genesis 2. In God and in, and, in, and in marriage that God creates, there is wholeness. There is sensed intimacy. There is belonging that is experienced because of shared weakness and vulnerability. There was nakedness with no shame, no fear, and no oppression. That young girl, Serena, she, she reservedly shared her nakedness. It wasn't in a place of peace. It wasn't in a place of confidence. It wasn't in a place of safety. With reservation, she shared pictures of her naked self, and that was exploited by her boyfriend, and, her friend, and his friends, crushing her inner innocence, bringing guilt and shame upon her from within, and then all of her peers, which led to the, the suicide attempts. Now, obviously, and thankfully, not everyone has that kind of experience, but I, I think that, that many of us have had, continue to have experiences where in the opening up of our vulnerabilities and in the opening up of our weaknesses, in the exposing of our nakedness, we have had and continue to have shame, oppression, fear, guilt, isolation, loneliness, all of these negative things that come when our, when our vulnerability and weakness isn't cared for and protected and covered, which is what marriage between a man and a woman is intended to do in the context of, of God. Sexual experiences do not bring wholeness and the sense of belonging, and that's one of the deceptions. They don't bring it. Wholeness and belonging and a sense of, 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 of peace and emotional and physical and mental well-being come... It, that is a, a, those things come from these other foundations and building blocks. Sexual experiences do not create them. They come from honoring God. 
And many of our mental health issues come from um, our collective sexual immoralities. The fourth thing is that we see that, that sexuality, one flesh, is tied to the creation of life. Again, it's not just the pursuit of, of individual pleasure. It's not just the pursuit of individual experiences that, that will make us happy. But it's a, it's a humanity perpetuating thing. Man and woman becoming one flesh. Now, obviously under sin, not everybody experiences this. Not everybody that wants to have a child has a child. But this is the general idea from Scripture and God's intent prior to sin. See, our culture, it wants the pleasure and the self-fulfillment that comes from sexual experiences, but they want it to be safe. They want it to be free from commitments. Uh, And really, sex is anything besides those things. If we continue to take something that God has created and we want to push out all of these other dynamics, if we want to push out children, if we want to push out commitment, it's going to change the nature of that experience. And that's what's happened. The formation of family as man and woman comes together, and yes, raising children is toil. It is anguishing. It is quite difficult. It takes a huge amount of commitment. But the fruits that come from that are a part of the, the, the general uh, sphere of, of well-being and wholeness and, and fulfillment that comes from, from God expressed through the one flesh relationship. Which takes us to this fifth thing, family creating. The science has long recognized that the best and most healthy context for the raising of children is a, is a mom and a dad as husband and wife committed to each other. It's within this, this family context that kids learn how to uh, honor and respect authority. They see, they see mothers, wives honoring and respecting their husbands. They see Husbands and wives respecting government authorities, church authorities. They see a recognition of, of the need to follow in law, follow law that is needed for, for civil society and for healthy families and communities. It's in families where we learn how to, to love and serve others in kindness and in compassion. It's in families where we learn how to work to meet our own needs and to meet the needs of others. It's in families where we learn how to live as men and women in the context of a family. And then these things continue to to grow and multiply and create community, society, cities, nations. So we see here five things at least, there are more I'm sure, out of the first two chapters out of the book of Genesis that shows us that the one flesh relationship, human sexuality, is so interconnected and integrated with all of these other experiences. We cannot remove it without it having an effect on all of these other things and itself. And itself. The last one, Song of Solomon. I'm not going to go through Song of Solomon. It is, it is five poems, the intention, of which, the, the intention of which is to really show and highlight the pleasure and the beauty of the one flesh relationship between a husband and a wife. 
It's an extended set of poems to provocatively generate a, a healthy sexual imagination. And it really deals with all aspects. There are there's some poems about what family life looks like in the raising of children to produce sexual wisdom in those children. There's, a, there's poetry about courtship, which is the season of getting to know the person that you've committed to marry, which grows our love and anticipation for being married to them and the sexual aspects of that. There's poetry about the wedding night and romantic and secluded vacations together. And there is poetry about the challenges that are present within, within marriage that husbands and wives have when it comes to their sexuality. It is a whole picture that, that elevates beauty and delight with the necessary guardrails in order to keep it, to keep human sexuality as something that is beautiful, enjoyed, and leads to our, our, our social and emotional and mental well-being. And it leaves the reader really with, I think, two experiences. One... It leaves the reader wanting to experience the, the images and the ideas in the poems, which then drives them, the second thing, it then drives them for the type of preparation and the type of conduct that is needed in order to bring about that experience. So that's, I would say, some of the ideals that are raised up in Scripture in regard to human sexuality and how it is connected to so many things in our society, and really is at the, 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 the foundation and the core fabric of what makes healthy civilizations. But we can't leave these positive images without acknowledging sin's effects. Man and woman, as we've already seen, they sought prosperity and happiness outside of God. And that rejection of him and that idolatry, that, that brought crushing consequences. We have massive confusion about what it means to be a human being, about being a male and about being a female as human beings. We have confusion about sex and family, work, community, society, service, authority, law, love, what goes into wholeness. All of these various aspects we as a culture are completely confused about and it is a consequence of sin. Now we could highlight some of these things that I've, that I've briefly described here today, but the solution is not simply going to be reordering our lives around these ideals and teachings. Our hearts are broken, and we know it, and we're not, we're not whole, which is why we pursue sexual immorality in the first place, we are looking for the, the pleasure, the wholeness, the belonging, the sense of identity that sexual experiences can provide in the context of God's purposes. But outside of it, they don't bring it. And we know we're not fulfilled. We keep pursuing it. We commit sexual sins. Others commit sexual sins against us, sometimes by force. And we sacrifice our own well-being and the well-being of others for immediate gratification. I'm just having a heck of a time up here today.
we have these what the scriptures call deceptive desires that come from our broken hearts and our broken minds. Deceptive desires are feelings that come up within us that press us to think that, oh, if I could only have that experience, if I could only have that sexual experience, that, that desire will be fulfilled. I won't feel this need. Scripture is also called the, 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 this, this, this feeling, the suffering of lust. The suffering of lust. There's a, a suffering we feel when our deceitful desires aren't fulfilled. And because the desires come from within ourselves, we think it's us. We think, oh, I am in need of this. I am feeling this. If I experience this, I will, I will be satisfied. The, the suffering will go away. I will sense fulfillment, fulfillment and wholeness and well-being, all of these things. And I think it's so strong in regard to, to, to sexuality because, we, as we've seen, it's, so, it's tied to so many things. It's tied to so many things. Our, our first recognition that something was wrong was through our nakedness in the story of, of man and woman in the garden. When, when, when we broke away from God, that broke a fundamental thing about what it meant to be a human being. And it's tied to human sexuality. I think that's why, again, it's so strong. It's so easy to, to pursue it in an idolatrous fashion. It's like our desire to eat, which again is, is tied to this the Sabbath idea. We see here in these, these essential laws that God gave Israel, just it's it's addressing what we are driven to do in our bodies. Eat and have sex. These really govern us. We don't see these things as an integrated part of nature. We don't see these things as an integrated part of God's creation. We don't see the need for God in them for us to experience them. But we can clearly see that we are broken. That we are broken. So if the solution isn't, okay, let's set up these ideals and go for those ideals. If that's not that, what is it? Well, I think that we need to Look back at the garden and recognize that there's something, there's something still missing there. See, God was still separate from man and woman in the garden. There was man and there was woman prior to sin, and they, they walked with God in the coolness of the garden, the text says. And even after, even after sin, God dwelled with his people through a tabernacle and then a temple, but the law, the prophets, and the writings all looked forward to a time where we wouldn't just be with God in his presence like in a garden, even, even without sin. That's not the vision that the law, the prophets, and the writings primarily promoted. They provided a vision of being in union with God. In union with God, not just with him, but in union with him. And that union with God has always been the grandest vision. And see, marriage and the one flesh relationship isn't the ultimate experience that we can have. See, marriage in the one flesh relationship is pointing to a higher and more powerful and more fulfilling ideal. 
union with God through Jesus Christ. That is the teaching out of the Ephesians chapter 5. He's, he gives us all these teachings about husbands and wives and how they are to live with each other and to share a one flesh relationship. But he's, then he says, but I am speaking of Christ and the church. I am speaking of Christ and the church. If we think that our ultimate expression of what it means to be human is going to come through some sort of sexual experience, even within the context of marriage, we are off. We are off. Our greatest need is to be in union with Christ. And the union that husbands and wives share pictures that. The lesser truth points to the greater truth. Without the greater truth, the lesser truth cannot be experienced. Cannot be experienced. The Gospel of John, is he, he, one of his major themes is this idea of union of union with God through Jesus Christ. And he teaches, uh, Christ says, I am with the Father, and the Father is in me, and I will be in you, and I am sending my Spirit, and he will make us one. And, th and that is the promise that God has for us. One with him through Christ. Christ coming into our broken world so that we could come into his union with the Father through the gift of the Holy Spirit. We took Christ's union with the Father because he came into, and he, he unified, he, he came into uh, our world as a human being. He, he became one with us as humanity so that we could be one with him in his relationship to God. You know, I want to conclude just with, real quickly, the story of, of Christ and the woman at the well, which is in John chapter 4. You know, the, the, the woman comes to the well, and she's thirsty. She's thirsty. And it's really not a story about her physical thirst. It's a story about the thirst that she was trying to quench through sexual experiences. And through their conversation, Christ acknowledged and brought up and, and exposed that she had slept with six men in her life. And he uses this metaphor of the water and thirsting to essentially communicate to her. And then her name is not given. He says, woman, if you, wanna, if you really want to quench your thirst, it's me. It's me. It's Jesus Christ. It's not in all these sexual experiences that you've been pursuing. Let me pray. Lord God, we, we are so abundantly thankful for what you have given to us to enjoy as human beings. So many things. So many things that are expressions of your life given to us, expressions of your beauty and creativity and power of which one of is human sexuality. God, we're thankful for it. But God, what we are exceedingly and most thankful for is the fact that we can know you so that these things can be enjoyed and that they don't become enslaving tyrants in our lives that constantly bring us into greater self-destruction and the harm of others. We're thankful, Lord God, that we can experience peace and well-being and wholeness 
through Jesus Christ and his indwelling spirit so that these things we don't we, so that these things don't become our slave masters but that they are things that we can enjoy in peace and in freedom thank you lord jesus in your son's name amen